So, Luke chapter 6, I have a question for you. What do you do when you're reading scripture and you stumble upon something that Jesus is saying that sounds patently ridiculous to your flesh? So we're in a passage today that an English reformer named John Jewell wrote this way back in 1562. He said, these sentences, good people, seem to be mere absurdities to the natural person, contrary to all reason. So allow me to demonstrate. Uh, I need two volunteers. Anyone want to volunteer? Okay, Ryan, do you want to know what you're volunteering for first? Well, let me tell you, I need someone to come up to the stage, and then in anger, I'm going to smack you across the one cheek, and then I'm going to shame and humiliate you and backhand you across the other cheek. Some of you still want to volunteer for? No, no, I won't do it. Okay, what about a second volunteer? This one will be easier. It won't hurt as much. No? No? Okay, Dave, Dave. So I need to borrow your vehicle, but you might not get it back, and you certainly won't get it back in the condition in which you lent it to me. Is that still something you'd like to volunteer for? Okay, okay. No one in their right mind, I feel like, would volunteer for these assignments. But without hyperbole, this is the exact sort of thing that Jesus is calling us to this morning. This is verse 27, and I'm going to read our whole passage to you, so settle in. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who hear, that's us, we hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The word of Jesus for us today. This passage brings to mind one of my favorite quotes from the British writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton. In 1910, he wrote this. 
It is not the Christian idea, that the Christian ideal has been tried and found wanting. Instead, it has been found difficult and therefore left untried. Or you may prefer how our own Gene Smarr is wont to put it. A few times now in our men's group, he's quoted an old friend from Atlanta with this line. It is not the stuff of Scripture that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the scuff of scripture I understand very well and don't do that tends to bother me. I wish I could tell you that this is just one of those biblical texts that is mired in complexity and ambiguity, but it's not. It's difficult because it is costly and it's uncomfortable. And what can I say? I must acknowledge at the outset that Jesus' words, while beautiful, strike us as strange, unreasonable, maybe even foolish, certainly out of step with the common sense of our world and culture. And it leaves us with a decision to make. Will we reject Jesus' words out of hand? Will we stand above the text, reading, dissecting, critiquing, Or will we let the text and the Holy Spirit who inspired and inhabits it stand above us, reading, dissecting, and critiquing us? Jesus asked his disciples in John chapter 6, he says, Does this teaching offend you? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And Peter, the lovable and brash Simon Peter. He speaks for the faithful and he says, Lord, to whom can we go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Lord, this morning, give us ears to hear. Spirit, we give you permission to teach us to transform and to sanctify us, to make us holy, to shape us into the image and character of Jesus, your Son, to expose what lies lurking in our hearts so that you might correct it and heal it. Make us more like you today, Jesus. Amen. So true confession... I like to wiggle out of the difficulty of this passage by claiming that it is not pertinent to my experience. It does not apply to me because I have no obvious enemies. I don't go through life saying, that man over there is my nemesis. You know what? We are in a lifelong blood feud that will not end until one of us meets our demise because he is the very bane of my existence. I'm pointing at our elder Josh, but we're good. (laughs) I just didn't want anyone else to feel uncomfortable. But real life doesn't sound like the Count of Monte Cristo, right? I also take comfort in saying that, sure, one day... If I find myself imprisoned and persecuted for my faith, yes, I will love my captors with the very fullness of my being in faithfulness to Jesus, my Savior. 
But honestly, this is a text for those Christians in Iran or, or India or North Korea. It's not for me yet. Not so fast. I feel like we need to ask an impertinent and asinine, a stupid question of Jesus. One day someone asked him, Lord, who is my neighbor? There's a part of me that says, I need to ask, Lord, who is my enemy? So what would be his answer? How does this text help us define what an enemy is? Well, an enemy is someone who hates us. Someone who curses and abuses us. An enemy wounds us and takes advantage of us. An enemy takes what is rightfully ours or withholds something that would be beneficial to us. We see in this text that an enemy is one who harbors no love in their heart for us. Someone who does not labor for our good. It is someone who expresses no gratitude for our efforts and our sacrifices. Jesus goes on, our our enemies are those who judge and condemn us. Individuals who write you off, who, who cancel you, who refuse to forgive or pardon you for your mistakes. An enemy is one who gives you a, a shoddy or an unjust measure. That's an image from the ancient marketplace. Imagine you're in the market and you want to buy a cup of flour. And the vendor gives you something less than a full cup for your money. It might be because they're rushing. It might be because they're clumsy. It might be because they are willfully using a, a deceptive measure that is a little bit less than an actual cup because they are trying to cut their costs and maximize their profits. Have you ever paid someone an honest day's wage for what didn't feel like an honest day's work? Enemy. Have you ever had your wife take the minivan into the mechanic and they said, well, that will be a $500 diagnostic but it doesn't even seem that they opened the hood and they said, you know what? Ah, we couldn't find anything. If you really want to find the source of the problem, it'll be $1,000 to do a more thorough investigation. Enemy, that blinking light is going off. Jesus slaps the label evil onto our enemies, but then he forces us to grapple with the fact that evil lurks within all of us. In a weird way, Jesus lowers the bar, at least in my estimation, of what qualifies as an enemy. Look at that list. I bet there's a whole host of people with whom I interact, even pleasantly, who hold no love for me in their heart and expend next to no effort for my personal well-being. They're not malicious or mean. I'm just... No one to them. Maybe uh, in our workplaces. Maybe it's sometimes that it's our own bosses or employees or coworkers who are our enemies. They, they curse your leadership or they, uh, 
They take resources that were rightly set aside for your assignments or they withhold information that could help advance your career because they need to advance their career. Sometimes we find our enemies in our own households. There's a time where our spouses can feel like our enemies. Our ungrateful kids. I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced an ungrateful kid. We're waiting one day to experience an ungrateful kid. Our kids are perfect. They do no wrong. But sometimes our kids can be ungrateful and can be, in a sense, in the place of our enemies. If I'm honest, I find that I often prove to be an enemy to those I love or to those with whom I minister. Because I often struggle to overlook an offense. I often feel myself wanting to speak words of condemnation. I too sometimes give a shoddy measure, less than my full effort, on particular things that I have been entrusted with. You see, Jesus lowers the bar of what qualifies as an enemy, and in so doing, he makes this a live text for all of us. But then he raises the bar profoundly, how as we, the people of Jesus, are to treat our enemies. He sums it up in a single word, love. Love everyone who acts as an enemy towards you. There's an amazing letter that has been preserved for us from the early church. It's a letter that a North African church leader named Tertullian wrote to the pagan governor of Carthage. This is a Roman official who's leading a persecution of Tertullian's church And this is what he wanted him to know. He says, A Christian is enemy to none. For our religion commands us to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, aiming at a perfection all its own and seeking in its disciples something of a higher type than the commonplace goodness of the world. To love friends is the custom for all people. But to love enemies is customary only for Christians. For all love those who love them. It is peculiar to Christians alone to love those who hate them. So what does this love look like? Jesus goes on to flesh this out for us, not just what this means as to the inner attitude of our heart, but how this love reveals itself in action. And here's what he says. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Do good is far more than don't respond harshly or don't retaliate. Doing good requires creativity and intentionality and effort. I believe I've told you this story once before, but I was reading at the beginning of this year a book from a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. And he tells a story of what happened in his church, how he had a, a Christian brother that was a farmer 
and he discovered he had to hand pump the water for the irrigation of his fields. And he would pump it at the end of the day, and then he would wake up the next morning, and he discovered that someone was stealing his water. And not only were they stealing his water, but they were stealing his labor, too. And he discovers it's his neighbor across the way. And he's torn up about it because it's not a one-time thing. It's not an accident. This has become habitual. And he goes to his pastor and he says, Pastor Nee, what are we going to do here? How do I confront my wicked neighbor? And they said, well, let's pray about it. And let's search the scriptures. And they do. And what their conclusion is, is this. For the next week... He goes to that pump and he first pumps the water required for his neighbor's field every day and then he pumps his own. And certainly this was a costly effort. It left his body exhausted. It limited his productivity. It shortened the hours of sleep that he got every day. But after several days, his neighbor, sheepishly, shamed, confused, shows up to the water pump because he does not know why someone is pumping water for his fields. And this brother, this long-suffering, enemy-loving brother, has an opportunity to share with him the gospel. And eventually, not immediately, but eventually, that neighbor becomes part of the beloved family of God. All because a Christian farmer took literally Jesus' words to love his neighbor, to do good to someone who hated him. What about the next command? Bless those who curse you. Well, to bless someone means to speak life over them. It's something the priests did to God's people. It's to invoke the very blessing of God into the life of another. It's to boldly approach God's throne of grace. It's to claim all the supernatural resources that God has made available to us on account of Jesus and ask that they be employed on behalf of this unworthy, bitter soul who slanders us and spits out our name with cursing every time they speak of us. What? And then Jesus links it with the command, pray for those who abuse you. And when you link those two together, I start to realize that Jesus is thinking of different sort of prayers than I am. I love reading the Psalms. It's a beautiful Old Testament book. I read a Psalm every morning. And David, who's the primary author of those prayers, often prays for his enemies. And he prays for them in a way that is raw and in a way that is real. God, protect my cause and crush those who seek my destruction. May their evil be exposed and may they suffer the just consequences of their actions. May their ill-gotten gains sour in their bellies. May their business ventures fail. May the traps that they are seeking to set to catch the innocent, may they fall in them themselves. I get those prayers. 
But Jesus is inviting us to intercede for our enemies' blessing, that they might experience grace that they don't deserve, divine favor that they do not merit. We're called to pray for our enemies' good, for their heart change and conviction, for divine intervention in their story, for deliverance from the evil that binds them, that they might be washed clean and made new and flourish in all that God has created to do them to do. We're challenged to speak God's good over them and to ask for opportunities to show them kindness, to sow seeds of grace, to incarnate, to make real and enflesh God's extravagant care for them. My flesh revolts against this. God, it is hard enough for me to find the discipline to pray for my wife and my kids and grandma. I don't have any more grandmas. That's weird. Take a moment there. Sorry. That got real. It's hard enough for me to find the discipline to pray. And now you want me to spend that effort praying beautiful things for these ugly, ugly people. I'd rather you just damn them all to hell. Well, that's revelatory, ain't it? It shows what's in our hearts. Jesus counters, actually, I want you to be willing to suffer abuse, to give until it hurts. I want you to even, in your effort to treat others how you would want to be treated, be defrauded and taken advantage of. I feel compelled to, to finish the quotation from the English reformer John Jewell. He wrote it in a sermon that was titled, For Those Who Take Offense at Certain Places in Holy Scripture. And he hones in on this teaching. He says, These sentences, good people, seem to be mere absurdities to the natural person, contrary to all reason. For the natural person doesn't understand the things that belong to God, for he cannot do so as long as the old Adam, the old man, dwells in him. Therefore Christ is saying that he wants his servants to be so far from vengeance and resisting wrong that he would rather have them ready to suffer another wrong than break charity by resisting it and losing their patience. He wants our good deeds to be so far from anything carnal that he does not even want even our closest friends to know of our good deeds so that we might resist pride in our own vain glory. Even though our friends and family are as dear to us as our right eyes and our right hands, if they draw us away from God, we ought to renounce and forsake them. Thus, if you want to be profitable hearers and readers of the Holy Scripture, you must first deny yourselves, repress your fleshly senses, which are taken by the outward words, and instead search the inward meaning. Reason must give place to God's Holy Spirit. You must submit your worldly wisdom and judgment to His divine wisdom and judgment. Remember that the Scripture no matter in what strange form it might be pronounced, is the word of the living God. Jesus says a little later in Luke 
Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? To truly receive Jesus, to trust him, and to follow him as our Savior and Lord, we must come to him, hear his words, and do them. We don't do it in our own strength. He gives us the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, the very life and power of God working through us, molding us to look like Jesus, but that does not stop us from this call to do what he calls us to. He gives us the power to do so, but we have to be willing to do it. So why? Why do we love our enemies according to Jesus? It's not because we expect reciprocity. It's not because we believe in this karmic balance that if we pay it forward, it will be paid forward to us. It's not even because we believe it's a uniquely effective way to spark change in somebody else's life. We do not love our enemies because we consider it to be effective. We love our enemies because of whose we are. We love our enemies because we've been caught up into the life of God, into the love, the power, the fellowship of the Trinity, and whose we are is now determining who we are becoming. But love your enemies. Do good and land. Expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And honestly, Jesus could have added, be merciful as I am merciful. We talked about Luke eating, or Jesus eating his way through the Gospel of Luke. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, but it, almost as many times as he eats with the undesirable and the reject, he eats with the religious leader who is opposing his ministry, with the Pharisee who is plotting his destruction. He seeks to dine, to be family with even his enemies. Jeff taught us last week about how on the, mo the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he humbled himself and humiliated himself to wash Judas Iscariot's feet, to honor and to lavish with grace his enemy. We remember that on the cross he prayed what? Father, condemn them. They got me. No. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You remember what Paul testified to the Christians of Rome. He said this, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This was true for our Heavenly Father. It's true for Jesus. It's true for His people. It's not just spiritual fluff. This is something that the Spirit works out in the practical realities of our life. Luke writes a second volume. It's called the book of Acts. And we hear stories of a man named Ananias, who God struck blind, the guy who was coming to kill him. 
And instead of celebrating, God says, go to him, pray for him, heal him, and then embrace him as a brother. Cornelius is this Roman centurion, this oppressor of the Jewish people, and Peter is given a vision to go to him and to eat in his home because God has taken that enemy and made him a brother. Paul and Silas get wrongfully imprisoned. God miraculously rescues them. The prison doors open, and what do they do? They voluntarily stay there because they are concerned for the life of the jailer. And they realize that God is not only intervening in their story, he is intervening in this man's story, and salvation comes to the jailer and his whole household. We love our enemies because of whose we are. We also love our enemies because it is integral to our proclamation of the gospel. For those, this is 2 Corinthians 5, for those, for the love of God, Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Because of Jesus, we have this clean break with our past. And he died for all so that those who live by putting their trust in Jesus, might live no longer for themselves. They might live no longer at enmity with others, but for him who died and was raised for them. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. While they might act as an enemy towards us, we no longer experience them as an enemy because enemy is no longer an operable category for us. And all this is from God, Paul says, who reconciled us when we were his enemies to himself through Christ. And he's given us now this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their violations, their sins against them. And he's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is that ministry of reconciliation, this gospel, but God forgiving the offenses of his enemies and creating a gracious pathway through his own vulnerability where he bore the risk and paid the cost so that estranged adversaries might be transformed into neighbors and those neighbors might be welcomed in as beloved family members in God so that they might be washed clean and made new and find a home in God's amazing grace. So imagine if we proclaim this gospel and then we live lives that are closed, our hearts are closed to the actual enemies in our midst. And yes, self-protection makes good worldly sense, but it would belie the truth and the power of the gospel that we say we believe in. Paul says we are Christ's ambassadors. He is making his appeal to you through us. God is making his appeal to our enemies through us. He's demonstrating his grace through our costly, vulnerable Christ-reflecting love. And finally, 
We love our enemies because Jesus declares that it is to our benefit and credit. Again, it's not karma. And there, in some sense, there is this sense of future rewards that when God, when Christ returns in power to bring around his everlasting justice and goodness and beauty to the earth, he will reward us in a way we can't even understand for our costly love of our enemies. But he gives us a little hint, a taste of what form these rewards will come in when he says, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven and this overflowing measure will be poured into your lap. It's not that we're expecting no judgment and condemnation or forgiveness from our enemies He says, you can expect that from me. I will not judge you because of Jesus. I will not condemn you. I will forgive you. I will give you this abundance. And here we witness God standing as our proud Papa, overjoyed to see his heart reflected in the life of his kids. To see his mercy made tangible to the world through those who carry his name. Nothing warms his father's heart more. And he says, I will bless that thing in my kids that is beautiful, which is my life sprouting in them. So we let Jesus' words read us and dissect us. We pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. We asked the question Jeff asked last week, Lord, what action would you have me take as I seek to hear your words and do them? And I'm going to invite the worship team to to come forward and close us in song, but We're in this moment where enemies abound, whether they're real or perceived. And I want you, when that enemy warning light starts to flash, when you feel in that moment that your coworker is standing against you as your enemy, when you feel like your spouse is acting as an enemy, when you encounter someone in the world who is, thinks different from you, who is, is chasing and running down a different path, who is what you consider an enemy to your values and your very way of life. What do you do when that enemy warning light flashes? The culture says, protect, defend, rebuke, withdraw, But when the warning light for an enemy flashes for us, God wants to transform that reaction to what? Embrace, pray, bless, do good, love. And not that this is simplistic or always easy, right? It's not that we don't hold this intention with something, say, like the government's role to to restrain evil or our, our heart to protect the innocent, but this should be 
the heart in us, the transformation is that when that real light goes blinking on, enemy, 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 that we don't run the other way. We don't try to protect ourselves. We say, God, you died for me when I was your enemy. Be with me in this moment to be Christ to my enemy. And teach me your way. Give me your heart. I cannot manufacture it on my own. Your spirit is going to have to give me an entirely new heart to do this. But have your way in me. And may your gospel, your enemy-loving gospel, flow through me. Because I was your enemy. And you welcomed me. You loved me. You embraced me. You gave everything for me. In a small way, let me do this for this person. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'll just do it again. Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in your way everlasting. May we not only be hearers of your word, but doers. You have the words that lead to eternal life. You are making all things new. We trust you with ourselves. We trust you with the salvation of our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.